universe. We praise your name and thank you for your goodness to us. Thank for the Sabbath again. We thank for your word that you've given to us. What a blessing and what a gift that you've given to us. And so as we study it, may we find the gleams of light that you have for us today. In Yeshua's holy name, amen. Our topic tonight comes from Prophet Hosea, chapters 9 and 10. We'll be reading all the verses. Uh, Hosea had a lot to write, and uh, uh, so we'll cover it all. Feel free to read it on your own. Verse 1, don't rejoice, O Israel, with joy, for you have played the harlot against your God. And so don't rejoice. Don't rejoice with joy. You know, there's people who rejoice without God, but it's not the same as with joy. Joy comes from the Lord. Oh, people can rejoice, people can celebrate, people can be happy, you know, um, just be happy. Uh, but that's different than, than true joy. Uh, and joy comes from within. We can have joy even when we're going through problems, even when we're going through struggles. We can still have an inner joy. We can have a rejoicing also, and we can have happiness also, uh, but joy is something, true joy is something that specifically comes from God. So God's saying, don't rejoice, O Israel, with joy, or you've been playing the harlot against your God. What will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver, and thorns shall be in their tents. Can you imagine going camping and having thorns inside your tent, huh? It doesn't sound very comfortable, right? It doesn't sound uh, like a great experience, right? So, so he says, this will, it's overtaking you, right? And what will you do in that appointed day? If we're playing harlotry against the Lord, again, we, we got to see this concept that has been developed all throughout Hosea of, of not just rebellion, but rebellion while professing to love God. All right, that's the whole thing, you know, with, with, with Hosea, the prophet, and, and his wife, Gomer. And while she's married to Hosea, she's also going with other men, committing adultery with these other men. And so it's not just a total denial of God, but it's a professing to worship God. But when we're in that state of professing to worship God and not being wholeheartedly for him, mixing our worship with him and our love for him with a mixture of other things, of, of following the devil's plans and the world and all other kinds of things that are out there to, to follow. When we're mixing that, it's biblical, spiritual adultery. And so he says, how can you then indeed, what will you do in the appointed day? Because when, when we're following the carnal heart, the things of God are, are not natural to the carnal heart. And the carnal heart is actually opposed, the Bible says, is enmity against God and against spiritual things. And so when we're in our natural state, our, the state we're born in, we're born in that resistance towards God, when we're in that state, it's impossible for us to truly enjoy and experience the goodness of God on the feast days, on the Sabbath. And so we can be going through the routine. But as it says, you're, you're committing harlotry against your God. What will you do in that appointed day? It won't be a joy. It won't be, it won't be able to get the full fellowship out of it when we're experiencing that resistance to God, but still trying to play 
as if we are following God. Trying to play both sides. That's a miserable place to be. It's a horrible place to be. Trying to love God in our own strength and yet wanting to follow our carnal nature and do the things of the world. And so maybe once a week or, or, or whenever we will try to look outwardly like we're serving God, that's a miserable experience because our heart's not in it. Because we, we have, again, the naturally the carnal heart. And so we can only truly rejoice and have joy in the feasts of the Lord, in the festivals of the Lord, in the, in the Sabbath of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, and in godly things when we have a godly heart. The Bible tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so we enter into God's spirit, and so the only way to enter into that state is to allow God to take out that carnal heart that we're naturally born with, that is enmity against God, that is resistant to God, and allow him to give us his heart. And as we allow him to do that, amazing things happen. The things that we were at one time resistant against, one time did not like, we all of a sudden start liking. And so if we find in our spiritual walk there are spiritual things that, uh, spiritual um, duties in a sense that we find resistant to spiritual activities again whether it's attending service or listening to the word of God or singing praises to God or, or being obedient to God in some area if we're finding in our heart a resistance to that and we may enjoy certain aspects but maybe just one area or maybe just certain areas we are resistant to in those areas we're living legalistically. In those areas, we're living hypocritically. In those areas, we are committing adultery against God while professing to do it but not wanting to do it. And the reason that we're not wanting to do it, we're not enjoying doing it, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. That's not natural. That's not normal. God says love one another. That's not normal. That's not natural. So to be able to do those things, to give to God and, 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 and over and above that charitably and joyfully, and to love and truly love and to forgive and all the other things of the Bible joyfully and cheerfully and willingly is only possible by having God's heart. So again, we may enjoy and be walking with the Lord in several areas, but maybe one area we're not. And that should wake us up. God, I haven't surrendered this area of my life to you. I haven't let you take control of that segment of my life. And so it's just warnings. And so that's what he's saying here. What will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? How are you going to enjoy that? How are you going to rejoice in that? When your heart is, when we're playing the harlot, when we're trying to play to the flesh, to our natural carnal nature, and to serve God. And so what we need to do when we find we're in that state in any area is just to surrender to God. Say, God, take out the resistance against you. Take out the part of me that does not want to do that or or, or wants to do these other things that aren't good, and give me your mind, give me your heart. And God then does that. He takes out the heart of stone. He put it into his son. He actually has already done that. He's put it into his son and died for those carnal natures, for those sins, for that resistance. We died in him. The Bible says since he has died, then we have all died. So we've died with him. Our carnal nature is dead in him. We can accept that by faith and accept then his new heart in us, the new life in us for every aspect of our lives. And so it's a continual journey, a continual walking with him. 
Because otherwise, if we resist, then it's like having thorns inside our tents. You roll over and you get poked, you know? You, you, you get up, you step on a, uh, a thorn, and it, it, it hurts, it pains. That's like what, what uh, God said to Paul. Paul was trying to be zealous, but he was actually, actually resisting God, and God said, it's hard to kick against the thorns. It's hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to kick against the prodding of the Lord, uh, the pointy that they prod the, the sheep with and the animals with. Hard to kick against that. It hurts. So when we're kicking and resisting against God, it's this miserable state that Paul was in, trying to obey God, but also at the same time resisting. And that's the state that Israel was during the day of Hosea. The days of punishment are here. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. Ephraim's watchman is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare, enmity in the house of his God. And so as we saw several times through the scriptures, and we'll see even more as we continue on through the life of the kings, that, uh, that there's always these false prophets and these resistors to God's word and uh, who are really just fools. They're really insane. They are uh, filled with iniquity and great enmity and resist the word of God. And they try to either add things or delete things from God's word. And get it unbalanced that way. Try and add rules that the Bible doesn't have there or, or uh, delete God's laws and try to ruin the balance of law and grace, of truth and righteousness. Verse 9, they are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sin. I mean, Hosea is just coming down. Every stuff here God's revealing to him. They're deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. Now, the days of Gibeah, Gibeah is only uh, mentioned a couple times in the Bible, or stories, because several chapters mentioned over and over again, but regarding two specific stories, one is that Saul comes from Gibeah, and King Saul, the first king of Israel. And so where we asked for a king when, when God was our king, so there's several accounts of Gibeah being mentioned there, but even prior to that, in the book of Judges, towards the end of the book of Judges, a very interesting and kind of strange and heartbreaking story takes place. There's this guy from, from, uh, from Judah, and he's traveling through the, through the area of Benjamin and comes to Gibeah, and no one invites him into his home, and he's traveling, and he's got his concubine with him, and I forget if he has some other people with him or not, but he at least has his concubine with him, and, um, and there's no one inviting him in, no one showing hospitality, and, uh, and eventually he comes across, across a guy, an older man, and, and this guy takes him in. Basically, the guy has to invite himself in. The guy takes him in. Well, in the middle of the night, the people of the city come banging on the door, telling the man to, to let his guest, to tell his guest to come out that they may know him. Kind of like a Sodom and Gomorrah type story. And the, the, the man of the house, uh, the owner of the house says, no, no, how dare you do this wicked thing? And kind of like Lot again says, no, why don't you take my daughters or, or, or take the, the concubine? And they're not happy with that. But, uh, but eventually they send the concubine out, and, and it's just horrible night for her all night long. And, uh, and in, in the dawn, they just kick her uh, away, and, 
and she goes crawling to the house, and she gets to the doorstep, and she dies there. Just with her hands on the threshold of the door. And uh, in the morning, the guy wakes up, goes to open the door, he sees there, I mean, he's not very nice at all. <laughs> he opens the door, and he sees her there, and he says, come on, let's go. I mean, pretty horrible thing, but uh, uh, again, it's a crazy, crazy story in the Bible, but the Bible tells it like it is, tells the stories of, of what happened, you know? And she doesn't move, because she's dead, he figures out she's dead, so then he takes her, and he cuts her into 12 pieces, and he sends a portion of her to each one of the 12 tribes, and says, this is a horrible thing, and he tells the story of what had happened to her, because he writes a note and sends her body parts out to to the whole nation that way and says this is a horrible thing that should not have happened anywhere in Israel and that scene I mean just receiving a package of a body part you know with this note of what happened uh, it just just enrages the whole entire nation and so the 11 tribes come down to Gibeah and to Benjamin and demand that uh, that justice be served and the Gibeonites and the Benjamites resist and they end up in a war and uh, the Benjamites just, just get slaughtered, almost down to nobody. Um, and then eventually the 11 other tribes cry out to God and say, um, what are we going to do? We cannot lose a tribe. We, we can't be 11 tribes. We're 12 tribes. Uh, what are we going to do? There, there, all the women are gone, and, and, uh, and, and the men are almost gone, and there's 400 of them hiding in a cave. And, uh, and so they end up taking some, some women who from the other tribes that did not know a man, and, uh, and they let the Benjaminites, they have the women dancing with the Benjamites, able to come out and just pick one and take them home with them. So it's kind of, again, a crazy, crazy story. But, uh, but as far as then it ends by saying, and every man did write what seemed right in his own eyes. And that's kind of the lawlessness that was taking place there in those days. Uh, and so it says, they are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. So that corrupt story, that horrible story, and the horrible events, he's saying you're almost as bad as then. He's kind of labeling them with that. And that story was hundreds of years, took place hundreds of years before this time that Hosea lives, but it's still in the conscious, it's still known, it was still being taught out of the book of Judges, and so he, he brings that out. That's how bad you guys are now. Craziness going on that God will remember your iniquities, and he will punish your sins. And today, again, there's a lot of false prophets out there going, that God won't punish sin, that there is no punishment for sin, and trying to just whitewash everything. But God's word is clear. There is a judgment day. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. Woe to them when I depart from them. We can grieve God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can chase God away. I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All of their princesses are rebellious. Strong word, heavy word, hard word for a hard people. And again, God just, you know, responds how we respond to his love, to his graciousness. And we see he's been very gracious to be sent, Hosea, the whole fact that there's a prophet speaking these words shows the mercy and love of God. Amen. Shows that there's still hope. Shows that he's giving a warning. God hasn't just totally written them off. He's giving them a message. And he sent them a messenger. And we've seen throughout it, he's given examples and having Hosea marry uh, Gomer, the 
harlot and all these other examples throughout and promises throughout Hosea. Verse 17, my God, still chapter 9, my God will cast them away because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. Well, should it be any different today? Could those words still apply today? A guy would say, my God, or the prophet could say, my God will cast them away because they did not obey him? Is that still valid today, or do we have to take that line out and say, oh, no, God did that then, but he'd never do that again? That God doesn't, that God changed, that he was very mean then, but he'd become nicer over time. You know, he's mellowed with age, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so uh, they'd never do that ever again. No, this is the Bible. God does not change, and he's given us this example and reminded it and recorded it for their day and for our day as well. God will not be mocked. You cannot fool him. He has given us his paths and his ways for our benefit and is a test of who has the heart. That's what it comes down to. It's to help us to see whether or not, like we talked about before, whether or not we have our carnal heart or whether we have God's heart. Whether we are obeying and whether we are enjoying obeying. Whether we are willingly obeying. Whether we find it easy to obey. Uh, a friend of mine, just this week, he shared an experience where, where uh, and he asked, what did this mean? And he said that uh, and he loves God and serves God and, uh, for many years now, and godly many areas of his life. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, there's a lot of areas I, I just love and rejoice in serving God. But this week, there's this guy I know, and uh, he's got some, some um, health issues and, and, and mental uh, areas that, uh, that, you know, restrict him from being able to do a lot of things. He's not able to drive, and so he walks a lot. And, um, and just the other day, I, I saw him walking along, and, and uh, I didn't want to take the time. You know, I've given him rides lots of times, but I didn't want to take the time to give him a ride that day. And, uh, and I, I felt this struggle going on inside me. You know, I should do it, but I don't want to do it. And, you know, and he said, what was going on there? And that's what we're talking about here. That's very practical of the carnal nature wrestling against he knew what to do was right. He knew what would be the right thing to do, but he didn't want to do it. And we don't naturally want to do it in our natural heart. And so that was revealing at that point in his life or that day or that moment of that day, in that area, he hadn't surrendered that portion of the time, I don't know what he wanted to do. Maybe he wanted to go home, and maybe he wanted to take a nap. Maybe he wanted to do some job for himself, or maybe he wanted to you know, do something for his wife. Maybe he wanted to go out to lunch. or you know, I don't know what he had planned, but in his mind, that plan was cherished more than obeying the, the impression that God was putting on his heart. And so he needed to surrender that. He needed to surrender that aspect of his life and confess before God. God, I, I am this, you know, I'm being carnal right now. I'm resisting your will. I don't want to obey you. And so take this out of my mind. Take this out of my heart. And give me your heart and give me your desire and give me your action. And he said basically that's what happened. He, you know, he resolved to it. He surrendered to it. 
And then he went and did it, thank God, right? He picked up the guy. We're all happy, right? So he picked up the guy and gave him, gave him the ride to where he wanted to go. Now, it doesn't mean that we always have to give everybody a ride or that he always has to give that guy a ride any time, day or night, drop of a hat. But he felt impressed at that moment to give the guy a ride. And that's what he was resisting. And where he felt that was the right thing to do, but he didn't want to do it. And so when we surrender our lives to God, again, each moment of the day, throughout the day, with every issue, then we can have joy in doing it and what he calls us to do. And so when we're resisting that, it's evidence of whose heart we have, of who do we really love. Do we love ourselves, what we want to do, or do we love God? And so God was revealing to him at that moment he was not loving God, and so he was not obeying. And so, again, all obedience is just a test to help us to see whom we love. Because if we, God doesn't reveal that to us here now, then we won't confess it, and then we won't surrender it. And then what happens when he comes again to take us to heaven? Is he going to take those to heaven that are going to be resistant to God? Could you imagine being in heaven and having constantly being a heart that's resistant to God? What kind of place would that be? That would not be a fun place. It wouldn't be a fun place for God. It wouldn't be a fun place for anyone else. It wouldn't be a fun right? Have you ever been in that kind of situation? You know, you're in a car or whatever, or you're out of place, and, and most of the people there are happy about what you're doing, but there's someone there who's not happy about this day. They're having a little you know, fit or whatever, and they're not happy. It could be a great day. You're going, you know, you're going fishing, you're going camping, you're going canoeing, whatever. Everyone's happy about it, but for whatever reason, this person woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and they're unhappy, and they're making everybody else miserable. Right? You ever experienced that? You ever had that kind of thing? You think of some, you know, sometimes maybe you were the one, right? You were in a bad mood, right? And uh, something happened, you were just unhappy, right? It's not a happy experience. And that's what heaven would be like if God let any of us in with that kind of a heart. And it wouldn't be just for the one day or for an hour. It'd be the whole time. It would ruin it. That's why God kicked Satan and one-third of the angels out. And so this, this whole thing, he says, God, my God, will cast them away because they did not obey him. It's not that God, you know, had his feelings hurt. And he's going to, oh, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. No, it's, it's that it just, it won't work. And two walk together unless they be agreed. Right? And so that's the end result. And it's the same today as it was then. God will cast them away because, or if we do not obey him. Chapter 10, verse 3. They say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. What would a king do for us? Well, they had kings throughout the time of Hosea, but they had no real king. They had no king of kings. They're saying, what would a king do for us? What would God do for us? We don't need God. What do we need that kind of leadership for? What do we need that kind of telling us what to do? What do we need that for? Let's do our own thing. Like in the day of Gibeah, everyone doing what seemed right in their own eyes. Could you imagine a nation, this nation or any nation, that had no rules, no laws? You can drive as fast as you want, no traffic lights, no red line, no yellow lines, no white lines. Just drive wherever you want. If you're hungry, you go tell, stop and take whatever you want from whoever you want. That'd be horrible. The same with God's kingdom. God's kingdom. Verse 4. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. So they have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. Could you imagine, you know, here you're trying to plow, you're trying to 
plant these corn fields or whatever, and a hemlock, a hemlock tree grows right in the middle of your farm. That'd be pretty horrible, right? You know, I mean, one thing you have weeds you gotta pull out, but a big hemlock right in the middle, it kind of shade everything, it would suck up all the water from the plant. It'd be hard to grow some good corn or string beans with a hemlock in the middle of your field, right? It'd be hard to get the tractor through there. I was saying, this is what happens. Because they have sworn falsely in making a covenant, judgment will spring up against them, ruin their party, ruin their field. I think it's very graphic with these descriptions of these things. So it's a swearing falsely in making a covenant. Well, the Bible talks about two covenants. I think of the covenant. Covenant is a promise. Covenant is a promise between two parties. Covenanting, promising each other. I mean, commitment. Covenant is a will, a testament. You know, last will and testament, it's your covenant, your promise, your desires. Well, God showed up on Mount Sinai and gave us his covenant. Gave us his commandments. Gave us his promises. I am the Lord, that God, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods. In other words, you will not need any other gods. I am over all the other gods. I prove that. I'm bigger than all the gods of Egypt. I'm bigger than all the other gods, all the gods of the Canaanites, all the gods. I am, you will not need any other god. I am enough for you. I promise you that. And all the rest of the commandments, basically promises that God has given to us. So that's his covenant, his promise to us, to be our God. And so then we made a covenant with God. And we said, whatever you say, we'll do. We got it. We're in control. We can handle it. You give us these commandments, and we will do them. How long did that last? Not even six weeks. And we were breaking all of them. What was wrong with the covenant? We swore falsely in making the covenant. We proclaimed that we can do it. And can we do it? No. How much can we do? Nothing. We can do nothing. Nothing. Right? In Galatians chapter 6 it says, if someone thinks he is something when he is nothing, right? We are nothing. <laughs> and we can do nothing without God. But since God has paid the price for us and God has bought us and has redeemed us, he places worth into us and makes us valuable to him. But it's not in anything of our own. It's not in anything of self that makes us great or valuable. We have no power in ourselves. The Bible tells us without God we can do nothing. But we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Through Yeshua the Messiah who strengthens us. We can do all things through him, but only through him. But that covenant that we made with him, and that is the old covenant. The old covenant is not God's promise. The old covenant is not God's Ten Commandments. That's eternal. The old covenant that's been done away with is our promises to God, our false swearing falsely. Whatever you say, I will do. You can't do it. 
You can promise to do it. You can make your mind to do it. You can say, tomorrow I'm going to be better. Tomorrow I'm going to pick up that guy who needs that uh, ride. Tomorrow I'm going to be cheerful in my giving. Tomorrow I'm going to forgive that neighbor. Tomorrow I'm going to love that enemy. And you'll have no better success tomorrow than you do today. Because the carnal heart is enmity against God. There's no good thing in it. It has to be taken and thrown away. It has to be taken and buried on, in the, on Calvary. It has to be taken and nailed and destroyed in the Messiah. There is nothing good in it. It's totally corrupt. And God has to birth a new life in us. And thus all things become new. So it's the false covenant that brings up judgment. We make a false covenant promising God and then failing, thus we are disobedient, and it's like this hemlock coming up in the middle of our field. Verse 7, Samaria's king is cut off like a twig. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Now he says they shall say, so this is future tense what he's talking about here. This is very interesting because these very words are quoted in other parts of the Bible. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Let's look at one place in the book of Luke. Right, so there it is in Hosea 10.8. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Yeshua said, and this is on his ways, carrying, he's carrying the cross and he falls down and he can't carry it any longer and they take it off of him and they put it on this, this uh, man from Cyrene and, uh, and there's these ladies there and they're crying for him and Yeshua said, weep for yourself. They, because they will say, blessed are the wombs that never bore. And they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So there's Yeshua. He's just been at his last Passover, last meal, the night before, all night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying intensely, knowing what was going to come upon him, sweating blood, agonizing all night long, surrenders all, not my will, but your will done, even Yeshua out of the nature that he took on, surrendered it completely. Not my will that I've been taken on, this human flesh, but your will be done. Three times intensely praying. Finally, fully releases it all. Taken. Judas comes, takes him. They beat him. They drag him from court to court to court beating him and dragging him and bleeding more, whipping him 39 times, and thorns and some blood everywhere, and he's just being drained of all energy and strength, tired, hadn't slept all night, weary, being dragged through the cities and beaten throughout, and he's concerned for the others. He's concerned for these people that are weeping for him. Weep not for me. Weep for yourselves. 
because day is coming. We'll be blessed for the wombs that never bore. It's going to be a troublous time. And at that time, they will say, and he starts quoting Hosea. So his mind is clear. His body is shot, but his mind is clear. And of all the places in the Bible he thinks to quote, he quotes Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. You think, well, there's nothing good in Hosea. What's worth reading there? You should have found something that was worth quoting. And he quotes the prophet. He will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This analogy is brought out again in Revelation, Revelation 6, 14 and 15. And the sky will recede as a scroll. So again, last days. And the people hid in the caves and mountains and said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I always thought that's kind of a funny verse. But prophesying what they'll do, they're going to run from the face of him who sits on the throne. They're going to run and try and hide from the brightness of his glorious coming. Hide into the mountains and ask for the, hide into the caves and ask the rocks to fall on them and hide them from his glory. From God's face. And from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the part I think is funny. I don't know if you've ever seen a lamb or how many lambs you've seen. You can go to a petting zoo and, you know, pet a little lamb. I don't know how mad a lamb can get. I've never seen a, a wrathful, angry lamb. I've never seen a button little kids, you know, or anything like that. Button each other. I mean, not like rams, you know, boom, boom, boom. I mean, little lambs. Like a lamb brought before the slaughter who opened not his mouth. I mean, this little lamb who just willingly lays down his life and doesn't, doesn't care. Don't cut my throat. But it's the wrath of the lamb. It doesn't say the wrath of the lion of Judah. That, you know, I can make sense. You know, the wrath of, he's coming like a lion of Judah. No, he's coming. It's the wrath of the lamb that they hate. It's the face of the one that sits on the throne. It's God's glory and his grace and his mercy that has resisted the most. Because we've been choosing to disobey. We've chosen to have the carnal heart. And if we've chosen to have the carnal heart, the carnal heart is enmity against the face of him who sits on the throne. It's resistance against anyone who's authority. It's resistant to anyone who is good. And we see that. See, when we're in rebellion against God, when we're angry and we're bitter, we hate those who are happy. Misery, misery loves company, right? And so the wrath of the Lamb, they hate the goodness of God. It's what stirs them up and they're fearful and running away from the goodness of God. From his faith. They ask for the rocks and hills to fall. Horrible. Horrible, horrible prophecy. Sad. That God has poured out his grace that the Messiah has come as the Lamb of God to die for our sins. And that we run from that. 
We run from his authority sitting on his throne. And we resist him. But a day is coming where he will come. And those who love him and love his appearing, who've surrendered the heart and have a heart that's in tune with him, that have his heart, will love his appearing. And say, behold, we've waited for him. But again, if there's any area in our life that we're resisting him and disobeying him, we will cry to hide us from the glory, to hide us from the light. Because darkness hates the light. Darkness hates the goodness of God. That's why most evil things are done in darkness. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. And so he gives the warning, listen, if you don't, if you continue to resist, you're going to eventually call for the rocks and hills to fall on you. But you don't have to do that. So here are the prophet. God sends a message of mercy and love. An opportunity, sow for yourselves righteousness. Accept God's righteousness. Accept God's goodness, his covering of righteousness over us. Not our own righteousness, but his righteousness. Sow to that. For what you sow, that's what you will reap. And reap in mercy. As we are drawn to his righteousness, as we sow to his righteousness, as we ask for his righteousness, we will reap his mercy. We will reap his forgiveness. We will receive the bounty of the Lord, his forgiveness, his goodness, his mercy towards us. So we cry out, God, give me your righteousness. Thank you for demonstrating your righteousness. Thank you for showing me what is right and what is wrong. God, I desire that. Plant that in my heart. Then mercy will crop up and that will be the fruit. Break up the fallow ground. What happens to fallow ground? I mean, most of us here in the city here, you know, aren't farmers or haven't been farmers. What happens if you just leave ground alone? You don't plant something there and you don't break it up for years. What will happen to it? You'll get weeds and, and, and what will happen to the ground? It'll get thorns in it, but what will happen to the ground? It'll get hard. Right? It'll get hard. If you haven't gone and plowed it in years, it's not soft dirt anymore. It's hard. It's hardened, and the weeds have gotten their roots in there, and it's all compacted together, and you try and bring a, a plow through there, it's hard work. So break up the fallow ground, the hardened heart. Break up the hard heart. Allow God to melt the hard heart. Allow his goodness and his love to break us. For the time, it is time to seek the Lord. Now is the time to seek the Lord. We read earlier, another week, a few weeks ago, seek the Lord while he may be found. Now is the time to seek the Lord and allow him to break up the hard heart and to remove it with a soft heart till he comes and then reigns. So he'll break up the ground, or break up the hardened heart, and then he rains righteousness and sow good seeds of righteousness into the soil, feeding on God's word, and filled with God's word, allowing him to live out his right life in us. And he'll rain his Holy Spirit upon us, and he'll pour his spirit into us, 
and cause mercy to crop up, cause righteousness to crop up in the soil. Beautiful promise, beautiful imagery that Hosea gives to us, the opportunity to receive. But verse 13, he then says, but you have plowed wickedness and you have reaped iniquity. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your own mighty men. Whatever you say, I will do. Trusted in my own way, my own power, my own might, my own strength. Well, I know the Bible says that, but you know, I think this makes more sense. I know the Bible says this, but I think eating the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own ways and the multitude of your mighty men, therefore, atonement shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. All our fortresses, all our walls against truth, all our arguments, all our excuses will be plundered and come falling down. And at the dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Now this can mean talking about what would happen to the nation of Israel, which some years after Hosea did eventually come, the king was cut off, and we've never had a king in the northern tribes ever again. Judah continued for a long time, but after that, but northern tribes never again. It could be talking about that, or it could be prophesying about the king of kings, the Messiah who would come and who shall be cut off utterly. Daniel uses the same terminology, that the Messiah shall be cut off in the midst of the week that he died for us. And he died for us completely, utterly, dying for the sins of all humanity, that he was cut off. But then, of course, resurrected. That's the last verse in chapter 10. And the verse first in chapter 11, I think ties in with this. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now we'd say, okay, Hosea is talking about coming up out of Egypt with Moses, right? The prophet, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt, right? So my son being Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him, called him up out of Egypt, right? Pretty plain. Right, everyone see that picture and everything helps? Now, this verse is quoted in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Joseph took the young child, Yeshua, into Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. What prophet? What would be fulfilled by this prophet? Hosea. He quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And he says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, according to Matthew, how is Matthew applying Hosea chapter 11, verse 1? So Hosea is quoted a lot. We see that already just in this one sermon. We're seeing it's quoted three different places. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And who is Matthew saying is that son that's being called out of Egypt, that this is the fulfillment? Yeshua. 
that the child, the young child, Yeshua, would go into Egypt and then come out of Egypt. And so he says that's a fulfillment of the promise. That the prophet spoke. Which one? Isaiah 11 through. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Matthew says that's a fulfillment which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. I've called my son out of Egypt. So where in Hosea, he uses the term Israel. Israel as my son. I called him up out of Egypt. Matthew takes that and says, Hosea is not a historian. Hosea is a prophet. Hosea threw that line in, not to tell us something we already knew from Deuteronomy. Hosea put that in there to prophesy that Israel, God's son, or that Yeshua, God's son, would go into Egypt and come out of Egypt. And yet in Hosea, it uses the term Israel, and in Matthew, he's talking about Yeshua. How can that be? How can in Hosea it say Israel, and in Matthew, it referred to Yeshua? The same text. Because Yeshua is the embodiment of Israel. What does Israel mean? Wrestled with God and overcame. Prevailed with God and overcame. As a prince with God, you have overcome with God and with man. Well, who is the true overcomer? Who is the true prevailer? Who is the prince of God who overcame with God? Yeshua. And so Yeshua is the real Israel, the embodiment of Israel, the fulfillment of Israel. That's all the prophecies and all of the actions and all of the things that God had Israel do. Yeshua then did also. And so God fulfills it all. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Isaiah, uh, Yeshua wanders in the wilderness 40 days. Again, matching all these different things and over and over again. And so my son called out of Egypt as a fulfillment of that prophecy. You shall, out of Genesis, you shall name, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Why? For as a prince hast thou power with God and with man and has prevailed. That's the definition of Israel. Prince with God who prevailed. Prince with God who overcomes. And God calls each one of us to be his child, for us to come out of Egypt, for us to come out of bondage, for us to come out of Babylon, for us to come out of confusion, for us to come out of disobedience, and to be adopted by him as his son, to be adopted by his son, to become brothers with Yeshua and sisters with Yeshua, to be co-heirs with him, to become princes and princesses with God, prevailers with God, overcomers with God, to have our hard heart removed and have God's heart placed within. That joy, that, that obedience becomes a joy. That righteousness becomes rejoicing. That the hard heart is broken up and softened in the mercy of the Lord. That we can look upon God and 
look into his face, see his love, to embrace the, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world and run towards him and to seek him instead of resisting and running and calling for the mountains and the rocks and the hills to fall on us and hide us from us. It all comes down to a choice of who we want to choose and who we want to follow. Do we want to follow the Lord, be embraced with him, to be married and be faithfully married to him all the days of our lives? Or do we want to play the harlot? Do we want to promise we'll do it in our own strength? Do we want our covenant, our good deeds, which God calls the filthy rags? Do we want our efforts? Or do we want God's reigning righteousness upon us? We want God living in us and through us. We want God empowering us and transforming us. We want God to take away our sins. For him to live his life through us, through his Holy Spirit. Do we want to run from him? Or do we want to be drawn to him? It's the choice we got right now and throughout the day, throughout our lives. At each moment, might be just driving down the road. God impresses us to do something. Or at any point in the day, at each moment of the day, he gives us that free choice to surrender to him or to resist him. What is our choice today? What do you want to choose now? Whatever area God is impressing you with, whatever walk with you, with him that you're having with him right now, what is he calling upon your heart and your mind? What is he drawing you to do or to surrender or to not do? What area are you resisting? What area are you not rejoicing in? What area are you not having joy in? Whatever area you're not having joy of the Lord, that's the area that God wants to change. So that we have perfect joy. Even through the troubles, we can have perfect joy. We pray together. Let's let God speak to our hearts and reveal to us and transform us and make us and to the children of the Lord, the children of Israel. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for your love. Thankful for the steadfastness of Hosea to speak these strong words and these straight words to us. Thankful that they're important words. Obviously, they're quoted by others in the, in the scriptures. And so, Lord, make them real in our lives. Draw us with your everlasting love. Lord, give us a desire to see your face. Behold your glory. May you reveal to us any area in our life that we're resistant to you. Is there any area in our life that we're not joyfully obeying? Is there any area in our life that we're not joyfully walking with you? Is there any area where we're being hypocritical or resistant? Reveal it to us. Convict us. Give us the gift of repentance. Give us the willingness to surrender it to you. Take it out of our lives, bury it at Calvary, and replace it with your glory, with your goodness, with your power. And live out of us in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.